Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. I'm your host, Aaron Jones, bringing you the best nonpartisan information from our experts that you need to know. Welcome back, everyone. I hope everyone is staying safe and healthy. Today, we are checking in with our Russia scholars to talk about Vladimir Putin's proposed changes to the Russian constitution, which will see him in power until 2036, at least. To discuss, we have two eminent scholars from the Wilson Center's Kennan Institute, Matt Rajansky, the director of that institute, and Will Pomerantz, the deputy director, who joined me via Zoom. So, one of the news items that has come about in the last couple of weeks that maybe has gotten buried under coronavirus coverage is the fact that we see some constitutional changes in Russia to keep Vladimir Putin in power until well into the next decade. So we wanted to bring in our Kennan Institute top brass to see what they have to say about this and get their analysis on it. Matt, we'll start with you. Matt Rajansky, let's start with you. Um, what are your thoughts on this process here? I don't think it was a surprise to anybody, but what's the what's the lay of the land? Well, first of all, thanks for uh, having us on your show again, Aaron and um I'm very glad that we have some way of communicating with our friends on Capitol Hill uh, at a time like this and audiences beyond, um, because there are important things going on uh, besides uh, COVID-19, besides coronavirus, but that are also impacted by it and that impact it or its uh, potential in um, vast regions of the world, one of which is Russia. Um, The dynamic there uh, has actually been more surprising than not that um, after two decades of essentially unity of power in the person of Vladimir Putin, I mean, this, this guy has ruled like a Tsar. Um, that shouldn't be surprising in the grand sweep of Russian history. That's actually been certainly more often the case than not. And yet what is surprising is that observers, uh, and I'll freely concede, myself included, um, have been repeatedly taken in by the different kinds of bureaucratic, legalistic, ideological, political, and other maneuvering that he does in order to reposition um, or or adjust the context of his power uh, such that he retains, broadly speaking, broadly speaking, uh, popularity and legitimacy. Uh, he is, you know, what you would call the classic authoritarian with consent. That is to say, he rules uh, with a strong fist and using all the apparatus of uh, enforcement and power uh, of which the Russian state has plenty at its disposal. And yet he does so nonetheless with this aura of legitimacy and even popularity um, on the part of what has been called the Putin constituency. Uh, employees of the state, people living outside of the intellectual bubbles of Moscow and St. Petersburg. And you would think that these people would simply accept that in a kind of simplified version of the world, they would say, yes, he is our Tsar, and it's that simple. Why do we need to play these games? Um, But the games continue. And the most recent one, which I think Will can probably describe with uh, more detail and greater accuracy, is essentially that Putin Uh, opened up a whole new phase of constitutional amendments, uh, which opened a big social debate and an international discussion about his potentially handing over power to a successor. 
in, in something without a whole lot of democratic process to it, but nonetheless with some process. And that has seemed within the course of just a couple of months to boil down to simply, nope, in fact, he's clearing the way for himself to stay in power forever. So that's interesting. Before I uh, turn to Will for more of the details, I wanted to pick up on something you mentioned there, because you said that even you have been taken in by his legalisms and bureaucratic movements. Can you give us an example of that? Where, where have you as an expert on constant Kremlin well, watcher? You know, my, my, my training uh, was principally in, in Russian history. It was actually in 20th century, so mostly Soviet history. Um, but uh, when you're a student of Russian history, it, it's not hard. You don't, you don't have to try hard to think about uh, Russian Tsars of, uh, you know, uh, the, the Ryurikid dynasty, this is the like Viking Varangian early rulers of Russia and all of their descendants, uh, or for that matter of the Romanov dynasty, right? You know, Peter the Great, Catherine, et cetera, uh, as these unitary actors, as kind of the only decision maker who matters, right? And the reason is because uh, we're not sitting in Moscow in the 17th century observing all of the games that are being played in, in the power elite, uh, looking at who's up, who's down, who's been executed, who's been exiled. Um, we are looking in hindsight and retrospect, and we attribute everything important that happens in Russia to the will of the sovereign, right? That would not be an unreasonable frame to apply to Russia today, to be quite frank. It is the will of the sovereign at the end of the day that makes anything happen or not happen. And yet, as analysts and observers of Russia, I, I, again, just sort of you know, being, being uh, honest and self-critical, uh, to, to use the Soviet term jokingly, um, you know, we are always looking at the ups and downs. We are looking at the Kremlinology. We are looking at, you know, for example, the big decision that was taken uh, just less than a month ago that resulted in Russia essentially collapsing the world oil price by diverging from Saudi Arabia and the OPEC, OPEC plus arrangement has had huge ramifications. Right? The discourse on this is all about how it was Igor Sechin's decision, and Putin kind of let him run with it. Right? So I think that begins to explain. It's, it's, this, it's this idea that we're, we're looking for other factors beyond what, in historical retrospect, one could simply say, well, it was you know, the will of the sovereign. Putin decided, and, and thus it was. We're looking at all the myriad other factors that Putin has to contend with or that others seek to impose on Putin. And so I think naturally we're, we're, we're sort of taken in. We're, we're inclined to take something like a signal of power realignment seriously and say, oh gosh, who could be a successor? Is he teeing things up for Medvedev to come back? Is this new guy, Mikhail Mishustin, the prime minister of Russia, is he going to be a somebody? And you know, the answer to these things is partially, probably yes. Uh, but overwhelmingly, we come away with a single impression which is this story narrated 100 years from now is going to be a quite simple story. It's going to be the story that Putin took power, he consolidated power, and he held on to it forever. Will, could you give us some of the details of what Putin exactly is doing in this maneuver? Well, he has essentially taken the Yeltsin Constitution, um, which was written in 1993 when Russia was an emerging democracy. And through various sleight of hands and constitutional amendments, he has changed this constitution so that I think now we can safely say that it is the Putin constitution. 
Um, that is not to idealize or over-romanticize about the Yeltsin Constitution. Uh, it had potential, uh, but most of its rights in the original 1993 Constitution remain aspirational and not real. Nevertheless, Putin has changed several major provisions within the Constitution, and I won't deal with all of them, but I'll, I'll deal with some of them that are important. One, he has revised the division of powers, which was not very strong to begin with, and has significantly downgraded the judiciary so that henceforth the president, i.e. Putin, can initiate, initiate proceedings to remove a constitutional court, a Supreme Court, or other high-level justice. Uh, he has transformed the system of rights. Again, the, the 1993 Constitution was significant because at least it uh, idealized that individual rights would be placed first. It did mention social rights, but the individual civil rights were assumed to be paramount. Putin has rearranged that, uh, that equation and has essentially stated that social rights now are more important than the civil rights in the Constitution. Um, he has um, upgraded the prosecutor's office, which, has, which already had significant power. Now the prosecutor's office is legally in charge of enforcing and observing the Constitution. Um, and finally, I'll just emphasize that he has significantly strengthened the presidency, uh, not only in terms of the judiciary, but also in terms of the government. The government theoretically is an independent executive branch. Uh, Putin has now rewritten that provision where he now states that the government is under the general uh, guidance and leadership of the president. So there's really been a very significant transfer of power uh, to the presidency, which was already a very strong super presidential system. Um, and I think, as Matt described, he has made sure that it is Putin, Vladimir Putin, who will, if he wants to, lead for the next decade and will define the system. You mentioned that there's some changes in rights in this constitution. I'm curious though, because when Americans look at the supposed rights that Russians have, it it rings a whole lot different than what an American is expecting. Um, and it seems like a, a large number of people in Russia seem to be okay with that. Of course you do hear about, you know, protests and things, but uh, when it comes to rights and what we consider to be freedoms, uh, I think a lot of Americans are looking at the Russians wondering, well, why don't you ask for more? And now it seems like there's going to be even less. Can one of you guys speak to that? Yeah, um, I, I'll, I'll address that issue if uh, just, just to start with. Um, since the Soviet Union, um, this, under various Soviet constitutions and Soviet law, they emphasized the importance of social rights. And they really rewrote the notion of social rights and made it much more popular around the world. At the same time, what they did was that they recognized individual rights and civil rights um, and due process rights, et cetera, but they always put caveats and qualifications in front of those rights. 
one of the significant changes of the 1993 Constitution was that theoretically it put rights first, uh, individual rights. Um, now, as I mentioned, I think that with these reforms, the social rights have become more paramount and more important. That being said, Russians generally, if, if you look at polling, value their social rights more than their individual rights. So this, theoretically, is a very popular move. Move, And for Putin, who is going to subject his constitutional amendments to a national plebiscite, uh, he wants people to go and vote for this constitution because it raises the minimum wage or guarantees pensions and so forth. So I think what this constitution does is reinforce uh, 20th century historical patterns and the Soviet notion of social rights. Yes, uh, people are skeptical about their individual rights and civil rights. Um, and in light of the difficulties and problems that they face, uh, the social rights, access to health care, access to education, housing, etc., can be moved, uh, viewed as more important. So, yes, this is not uh, the equivalent of American civil rights. Um, indeed, Russians have always placed notions of unity over notions of rights. And this constitution then represents a continuity because it also emphasizes notions of unity over notions of individual rights. Matt, I want to get back to something that you had talked about, kind of like how this is viewed a hundred years from now. And I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on whether or not there is a a desire to not see Putin as a, as a czar or a hesitation just to go that far. I, it certainly seems like from all yeah. that, all that we're talking about here, he is a czar in, in every sense of the word um, going back centuries, really. I mean, but yet we don't really want to put him in that category. This is, this is a wonderful, wonderful question, Aaron, because uh, in a way, it plugs right into the centuries-old dilemma of understanding Russia, not only for Western observers of Russia, but for Russians themselves, uh, that, it, that recurs uh, constantly, over and over. And that is, is Russia a Western, rational, bureaucratic, administrative, democratic, whatever, state, a, a republic of that kind, or even a federation of that kind, like we have in the United States, or is it something else? Is it something that is more deeply Slavic? Is it something that is orthodox in nature? Is it something that is Eurasian or Eurasianist? Um, is it something that has to be mystically connected to the soul of the Russian people? I mean, you could start chuckling at my using this terminology, um, it, it sounds anachronistic. Uh, in part, it is. It harks back to debates uh, between famously the Slavophiles and the Westernizers of, you know, 150 plus years ago. Uh, but these debates are still going on. And I think in part, in part, the reason why there's such a clear duality to the Putin system, that is to say, on the one hand, it is classically, um, uh, you know, an iron-fisted, almost 
sort of uh, Batushka, little father on earth, right? God is the big father in heaven. Uh, the little father on earth is the Tsar. It's, it's almost reminiscent of that, the way that people appeal to Putin directly to solve their problems in these massive uh, hours-long national video call-in conferences that he does. By the way, th those would be great during uh, social distancing. He could, he could do one of those every week if he wanted to. But, it, you know, it's, it's Tsar-like. Uh, in, in, in the trappings of power, in the exercise of power, the fact that he relies so heavily on the secret police and uh, on the state uh, monopoly on, on force, uh, just endless parallels that someone like, like me can get very excited about with the, the classical history of power in Russia. But there's also this other element that also has parallels with Russian history, and that is a desire to be seen as, not only by Westerners, but by Russians as well. Uh, a desire to be seen as somehow not merely uh, holding, uh, cleaving to power for its own sake. Uh, th that there, there is a set of rules, that there, there is a set of principles that are bigger than just the man, that do not come from God, but that come from, let's say, the people through a process and so on. You know, Will has written extensively about this. Uh, at the center, some, somehow you could argue sort of in between the man who is the embodiment of power and the people is the state, right? Gosudarstva uh, or gosudarstvanas, the stateness of the Russian system. These are concepts that enable the Kremlin, in a sense, to play fast and loose with its self-definition. It never has to really fundamentally grapple with or answer the question of what are we and what do we purport to be when it can be, in a sense, all things to all people. So it seems to me at this moment in time, the answer to your question, Aaron, is, you know, yes and yes. Uh, yes, Putin is absolutely a Tsar. And yes, Putin is running some semblance of a constitutional process or a democratic process because he clearly thinks that's important. So we know that he wants this done. Obviously, there's a... Uh, uh... I guess an impetus to get this done. Uh, what's the timeline in which it needs to be done by? To, from a legal standpoint, once the uh, Duma and the Federation Council approve these amendments, and once they are approved by, uh, I think it's two-thirds of the regional assemblies, then these amendments become law. And so, um, that is the legal timeline, and that will be met very shortly. Putin has added a wrinkle, however, that he said that he wanted the amendments to be approved as well by an all-Russian plebiscite. Uh, that was scheduled for April 22nd, but it, it has now been postponed. So it's not clear when that plebiscite will take place. Um, it's not clear under what conditions people will be voting in that plebiscite. But um, for Putin, he wants this stamp of approval. Uh, and so he is, I, I believe, still planning to hold the plebiscite. But as soon as the technical matters uh, are approved by the various uh, representative bodies, then these amendments become law. Um, so what we have is the amendments taking place, but a legally dubious 
and I should say uh, inappropriately named all Russian plebiscite still to take place. So why is it inappropriately named? Because the Russian state, and Matt alluded to this, um, has always dealt with the multinational peoples of the Russian state and has not assigned the Russian people as the primary, at least legally and philosophically, as the primary representatives of the state. It has always had to appeal to a multinational people. And in fact, Russians only make up, uh, I think it's 77% of the Russian population. And there are significant national minorities within the Russian Federation. So it has been always, in Soviet times and in post-Soviet plebiscites, um, the reference was for the, the, the Soviet people or the multinational people, but never references to the Russian people. Um, That was deemed to be too controversial uh, in a multinational state. Uh, Putin, however, has uh, referred to this upcoming plebiscite as an all-Russian plebiscite. And I think that uh, there have always been, already been rumblings in certain regions, such as Tatarstan, that uh, they're not really very happy to be participating in an all-Russian referendum. That makes sense. Okay. So it's had to, this this plebiscite, this all-Russian plebiscite, as you you say it's called, has been postponed due to the COVID-19 situation that we're all dealing, the the whole world is really dealing with. is there is this causing any political uncertainty for Putin uh, with the way that COVID nineteen has been handled? There's been reports that uh, the outbreak in Russia may be larger than um, it's being reported, and some doctors have come out saying that they've been told to diagnose things differently. Um, so what's the what's the, what's that effect on the politics there? So what we've seen so far is an interesting cognitive dissonance in Russia between, on the one hand, very forward-leaning and quite early um, social distancing and quarantine measures uh, being enforced, for instance, in the city of Moscow, uh, Russia's biggest megacity, you know, maybe as many as 15 or 16 million people in the greater Moscow region. You know, you had the mayor of Moscow, clearly with the assent of the Kremlin, ordering quarantines on all arriving international uh, flyers from uh, a long, long list of countries uh, as early as a month ago. Um, And then you had various degrees of social distancing and quarantine being ordered uh, in Moscow itself relating to restaurants and so-called non-essential businesses. Um, And then as of last week, you had a mandatory paid holiday for the entire country being ordered by the president. I mean, these are, these are, I would argue, these are more forward-leaning measures coming earlier. We may see them later on here in the United States or elsewhere, but they're more forward-leaning, more expensive uh, and coming earlier than in many places. And yet at the same time, the total number of cases being reported is dramatically lower. Uh, than in many other countries, including neighboring countries, not just China, which is, of course, a neighbor of Russia in the in the sparsely populated Russian Far East and Southeast Siberia. Uh, But, for example, Ukraine, 
which uh, per capita has far has reported far more cases. So all that taken together suggests, uh, given that the Russian government historically is not um, super ahead of the curve in terms of uh, its response and containment of these kinds of challenges, it is likely that there is some data that is known to the top officials about how widespread this thing has become uh, that is, is perhaps not yet known to the wider world or hasn't been acknowledged to the wider world, um, and they're responding to that. That's why you see the draconian, draconian measures. In terms of games being played that you know, doctors are, are attempting to blow the whistle on, um, that's really hard to falsify. Uh, the, the, the stories are, for instance, that there are deaths, um, which deaths in Russian hospitals uh, that have to be reported, but there's pressure on those hospitals to report the deaths as being from influenza or being from other kinds of potentially plausible conditions that people might have died from other than COVID-19. Uh, in order to keep the numbers down. So is this is this creating any political challenge for Putin, or is it like it always is to kind of the casual observer where you see you've got protests, you've got all these challenges, but yet Putin seems to have a 60% approval rating or something like that? The, the short answer is there are not going to be any mass protests for a while for two reasons. Uh, one, the people who would be most inclined to protest are probably most inclined to believe the international science on coronavirus and uh, be very concerned about congregating in large numbers together. So they're not going to do that for their own uh, self-preservation reasons. But also, um, we have seen very compelling, uh, very unsettling, uh, unnerving footage of, uh, and, and in fact, uh, orders that have been promulgated and published uh, for Russian troops, uh, both interior ministry uh, sort of public order troops and actual uh, Russian military troops being dispatched to Moscow en masse uh, in armored personnel carriers, on buses and trains. Um, so it is very clear that the state is prepared to use its um, repressive apparatus if it needs to, uh, to enforce its rules around the coronavirus quarantines. Um, but once they're there, I strongly suspect they could be used for any purpose, including, of course, the purpose of breaking up a public demonstration. I mean, what better excuse could there ever be for breaking up an anti-regime demonstration than to say, it is not safe for you to gather in large numbers, go away with you, and to, to send in the troops. Some conspiracy theories and some general, general questions into, that, in, into the issue about the political ramifications for Putin. One of the interesting things is that Putin appears to have taken a back seat in the, uh, in the fight against coronavirus. It seems that he has designated the mayor of Moscow, Mr. Sivyanin, to actually lead uh, the fight against uh, coronavirus. Um, and it's not clear exactly when Putin will reappear and try to take control over, the, over this uh, policy initiative. Um, there was an interesting meeting a week ago where Putin went to a major hospital uh, in Moscow and shook hands with a doctor, and this doctor has now been tested positive for coronavirus. So I, I, the rumor, and again, it's not confirmed, is that Putin might just be quarantining himself uh, because he has been exposed to the virus. A third point, and this doesn't necessarily mean that, as Matt emphasized, that there are about to be major protests uh, in the streets, 
but the initial polling about the uh, support for the all-Russian plebiscite and the constitutional amendments is not very high. A lot of people are very skeptical, uh, according to the polling. Now, as Matt emphasized, this doesn't mean that people are about to go to the streets or that Putin might lose the referendum. I think those are highly unlikely events. But at least in terms of his level of support, um, these constitutional amendments, and especially the amendment uh, extending Putin's power, at least in the initial polling, has not been very popular. And the final thing I'll say in terms of the politics is that it's unclear how much money Russia can throw to this problem. Uh, there was a report in the press today that they're spending approximately $18 billion uh, to uh, gear up on a uh, coronavirus program. Uh, $18 billion versus a couple trillion dollars in the United States. So it's unclear what resources uh, in terms of economic uh, stimulus Putin will throw at this problem. Right, and as and as the as the oil prices continue to fall, right. this this is what the Russian economy and budget is basically based on. Exactly, and Russia has over five hundred billion dollar hard currency reserves uh, that uh, have always been held uh, for a rainy day, and I think it is unfortunately raining not only in Moscow but around the world, and Putin has to decide. Uh, how much of that rainy day fund of those hard currency reserves he can throw at this problem in light of the fact that he's also engaged in an oil price war, um, which is dramatically decreasing the revenues available to the Russian state. Okay. Well, I really appreciate you guys coming on and talking us through this. And I, I think it's something we'll probably have to have you, both of you back on as this progresses, because this is a huge issue, um, not going away anytime soon. And of course, as we deal with coronavirus and all of the ramifications of that, uh, it's interesting to see how it's playing out in another country. But then, you know, we may be dealing with Putin for just so much longer. And the, there's a lot of questions surrounding that. So thank you both for joining us today. My pleasure, Aaron. Thank you. That'll do it for this episode. I hope everyone stays safe, stays healthy, keeps listening to the podcast to learn more of what you need to know. And we will be back next time. Thanks for joining us.